This is DJ Bruja from Change to Change. We have a huge election coming up, the runoff. The early voting starts November 27th. Election day is December 11th. We got Susan for Sheriff, Troy Glover in District D. Find out more at VotersOrganized.org. Alrighty, here we are from Chains to Change. I am DJ Bruja, aka Bruce Riley, and today, post Thanksgiving, uh, stomach still, still getting over things. We've got an incredible guest today, uh, none other than Mr. Ronald Marshall. Ronald, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Bruce. How are you? I'm doing great. I, you know, I've, I'm really excited to get you onto the onto the show. Um, you know, you're somebody who has meant a lot to people close to me. And uh, and and we'll, we'll get into that. But uh, but just tell us a little bit about like what's your situation right now? What, you just you you just got out? Yeah, I got out October the twelfth, and things have been moving rather fast for me. I think the, my, my my biggest hiccup has been learning how to work a laptop. But for the most part, <laughs> my transition has been smooth, and I'm grateful for that. October twelfth, dang. So yeah, you've gotten yourself a Halloween. You've gotten yourself a Thanksgiving. Uh, how was your thing? How was your first Thanksgiving? Oh, it was great, man. My mom invited the entire family over. We had plenty of food. Still have plenty of food left over, and we sung Happy Birthday to her Thursday night. But her birthday is actually today. But it was a real treat to be back home with my family. All right, that's good. That's that's good. Good to hear. So, uh, so you know, originally, you know, we met through someone very close to me, Emily Posner, who is a uh, a civil rights attorney here in New Orleans. And, you know, she's one of the first people I met in this town when I came to Tulane Law School. We became fast friends. We had a lot in common. Uh, and, you know, she told me how she was working on a case, your case, and, you know, and told Norris as well, who, who had known you as well. So um, so how'd you come about meeting Emily and, and how did that come about? I met Emily through a mutual friend and we hit it right off. Uh, she, she, she clearly understood that I had a legal mind. I had a, a legal issue in court. And she put everything into helping me get out of prison. She believed in me when nobody else believed in mm. me. Yeah, that's important. That, yeah. <laughs> so, how much time did you end up doing? I did twenty-four years. Twenty-four years. You know, and I, I saw you for the for the first time uh, in that parole board hearing. Uh, I was checking you out, and I, you know, there's a lot of people who are on that on that hearing on that uh, on that Zoom or YouTube or whatever it is. And yeah, it was just I could see. That feeling, and I know that feeling. I could see that relief. <laughs> what was that? How did that feel all of a sudden to get to get the word? Oh, uh, so July first was the first time I had been. July first, twenty twenty one was the first time I had returned back to court after being denied so many times over the years, and I felt like my relief was in route. I saw the community support. I saw big faces on the Zoom screen. And it was like God was speaking to me when I saw those people. I mean, people came out in droves. I mean, it was enormous. The turnout was enormous, and it actually impacted the judge. Mm. She even acknowledged it, but I knew my freedom was around July 1st, the first day I returned to court. Mm. That's what's up. So before that, you know, you had gotten all into the law. I mean, did you did you start getting into the law around your own case or, or a, a brother beside you or what? Yeah, when I first arrived in Angola in 1990, 
1989. I'm talking about the very first day. 1999. No, that's 89. <laughs> <laughs> Sound of the funky drummer. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1999, when I first got to Angola, I arrived there, I knew right in that moment, when I first landed foot on that plantation, that that was not some place I wanted to be for the next 50 years, which mm. was my sentence. So I asked my friend, I said, man, how do you get to the law library? <laughs> the next day he showed me, and from that point on, Bruce, it was like, I never looked back. I, I, I walked that daily journey to Law Library every day for 24 years. Were you, uh, so how long did you do pre-trial? I did pre-trial maybe like 18 months. Yeah. Still in the Paris jail, 18 months. And even the Paris jail, I was studying. Yeah, you had a feeling you had a case? Yeah, I did. I had a feeling I had a big case. The circumstances around my case pointed to fabrication, mm. frame up. So, yeah, you know. Man, it's, it's always a hard one, right? Trying to prove a negative. Right? It is, especially the logistics project, because they're not concerned with guilt or innocence. They're mainly concerned with what the evidence says and what the jury believes, and so many people get convicted as a result of that. Yeah. How, uh, so what was the makeup of your jury? Uh, if I can recall, man, I had, it was a mixed jury. Mm-hmm. I don't remember, it's, it's vague, but it was a mixed jury. And at this time, Jury deliberation process when he was on guy's mind at the time, you know, mm-hmm. as it is today because of the, the non-unanimous jury issue. But back then, guys were mainly concerned with how the jury looked. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think you know nowadays people are learning even more about juries when they see things like the Rittenhouse trial and the the you know the Ahmed the killers of Ahmed Arbery, and you know now we have this kind of like televised interest. And it's interesting to see how these different biases kind of just play out nonetheless. You know, even if you're looking at it, people will say, oh, well, uh, you know, the police officer had a good reason to shoot so-and-so, right? But, like, you know, the young black man never has a good reason to shoot anybody, even if the, he got shot in the shoulder first. So, I mean, what what is what were the, some of the things that you saw while you were in there in terms of uh, issues and stuff? Oh, like that, man. Some legal issues you man. might have worked on. So, I grew up in the night wall predominantly black community in the projects. And in the neighborhood, I had never heard terms like racism mm. in my life until I arrived in the Department of Corrections in Angola. And I still didn't understand what racism meant and what it looked like, although I was seeing it in the penitentiary every day. And so many times, I mean, my first time being on lockdown, I heard the words, I can't breathe from the cell next to me. Mm. And in the prison system, you don't have cell phones. So the one that's recording these murders committed by correctional officers in the name of doing their duty. But I've heard the words, I can't breathe at least six times while I was incarcerated in the Louisiana State Penitentiary. Guys were being strangled to their death and nothing was being done about it. Absolutely nothing. And so, you know, so when you say you hadn't heard racism growing up in the Ninth Ward, is that just because everybody was black and so you didn't have that dynamic? I believe because we just didn't think about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, like like people in my neighborhood, they don't consider the voting process important. And I'm talking like 25, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. I, I, I remember my mom saying, if I vote, it ain't going to affect me. So they just didn't think about terminology like that because it was a predominantly black neighborhood and people just didn't care about the power structure. They, they just were living their normal day to day life. So racism wasn't, although we was feeling the string of racism because we were living in poverty, mm-hmm. but we never talked about racism. My mom never discussed that with me in my life, mm-hmm. you know? What were the police like back then? Okay, so you're talking about the, the, the New Orleans Police Department? Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, so 1987, my oldest cousin was murdered by a New Orleans police officer, May 4th, 1987. Mm. And this happened during a time when there was no talk about police brutality committed against unarmed black men. Mm. Mike was 16 years old at the time. He was the high school superstar, track and field superstar, football superstar at Nichols, T. High. He was awesome, and he didn't deserve those bullets in his chest May 4, 1987. So police brutality been around as long as I could, as a child. I was 12 years old when Mike killed. Mm. And that, that day is sealed in my mind forever. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's just it, it reminds me how much, you know, folks can easily set an example that you never can shake, right? You live through an experience. And then it's so hard to get past it, you know, and, and, you know, one of my great comrades out in L.A., Susan Burton, who's done a lot of amazing work uh, helping other people post-incarceration, and something that spun her out of control when she was a, a mom was uh, the police uh, running over her small child. And that led her down a really tough path in life, as, as one can imagine. And so you're saying, you know, you're, you're a young kid, and then this is your sense of, like, who the police are. And it's hard to unsee that, right? Yeah, man, Bruce, that 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 day altered my life forever. I'm talking about it plunged me into a deep depression, man. That was the turning point for the worst in mm. my life because Mike was my, he was the only role model of masculinity, positive masculinity in the community that was influenced by destructive forces. Mike mm. stood out as positive. And the police department took that brother from me mm. at 12 years old. So his absence and not being able to see him move the way he moved through life uh, as an athlete, as a superstar in high school, I was lost. And I easily gravitated toward that crowd of juvenile delinquency fast because I was searching for something that I had never found and still hasn't found today. Mm. Yeah, I can dig that all the way. So, you know, so you get to Angle, you're, you're a young dude, and... Um, you know, how long do you think it took you, and was there kind of like a moment where you kind of realized, like, I can do this thing? I don't think I ever arrived at that moment to complete a 50-year sentence. What I did to maintain my sanity is buried my head in the law books every day. I lived in the books. Uh, you can f I ate law. I slept law. <laughs> I drank law, I discussed law, debated law. That was the topic. If you wasn't talking about law, then you and I had no discussion. <laughs> Straight up, Bruce. If you wasn't talking about law and how to get out of prison, then you wasn't talking about anything. Your conversation to me was one ear and out the other. Mm. Wait, what about football or something? I never played sports in Angola. I never did nothing in Angola but attend the law library every single day. You didn't play hoop or nothing? I didn't do none of that, Bruce. I found all that stuff, to me, a waste of time. Because <laughs> I felt like, you know, the more the more I prolong, uh, in other words, the less time I spend on my case, the more I prolong my stay in prison. Yeah. That made sense to me. That was my philosophy. So I tried to spend more time on my case to lessen the amount of time I do in prison, despite the sentence that I had. Yeah, I'm with it, man. When I, <laughs> you know, when I was working on the law, you know, I was working not on my own case. You know, I was working on other guys' cases, and you know, mine was in some ways just kind of settled. You know, and 
and then for me it was a lot about balance and trying to have balance in my in my life but also having to try to decide if I can only help five people this week like which five right and I'm sure you I mean dang there's 6,000 dudes up in there like how did you decide like kind of where to where to put your efforts so what I saw Bruce early on in my incarceration I, I wasn't illiterate I knew how to read and write well I was in a parish jail 23 year old filing motions so when I got to Angola, maybe about six months into a year, I was really grasping the complexities of law, actually grasping it in a way to express it, write it, speak it, interpret it. And I noticed there was a, a, a large percentage of guys coming in the law library. I'd probably be like two years into my incarceration, but I'm very fluent with the law because you spend as much time on the law as I did. Mm-hmm. You basically master it. Mm-hmm. And I basically became a master of Louisiana's law. But I noticed when guys would come in the law library, they would just sit down with their, these, these huge, long brown envelopes, but they never opened them up. Mm. They just sat there. It was like they were looking for someone to, to come them to them to help them. Yeah. And I would introduce myself, and I realized quickly that these brothers could not read and mm. write. So I, uh, some guys and myself, we created our English grammar class to teach them how to read mm-hmm. and at the same time teach them grammar. And then once they get that, we have to teach them law. Now, can you imagine that process from illiteracy to learning law and still trying to file in court in a timely fashion? It's impossible to do that. Yeah, no, that's major. It's I, you know, I ran into the similar scenarios, right? And and I, you know, I, I quickly could, you know, you start figuring out, right? Like, okay, this this guy, you know, you just start saying little things like, oh, you want me to help you read that? And be like, yeah, yeah, thanks, man. You know, and and I can help you write that. You know, because a lot of times dudes don't want to admit that they're illiterate, and that's understandable. You know, and 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 I used to have a a rule: if I was going to help you with your case, you had to learn it, right? And so it was a little challenge for some some people who were illiterate, but we still managed to learn their case. So they could at least speak it. Uh, and then there was one guy, uh, Francisco, who who was he. You know, technically, he was illiterate in two languages, and you know when he got into court and they wouldn't give him a lawyer, they're like, clearly, you, you can understand the law by your filings. And he's trying to tell them, I didn't write this stuff; the guy at the prison wrote it. And so that's that's the kind of Kafka esque scenario that that folks end up in trying to get back into court with with their claims. And it's just, I know it must have drove you nuts. Yeah, it did, Bruce. Uh, so many times I remember guys getting that one big shot to getting that before the judge, something that happens rarely mm-hmm. in the early 2000s. It was just a one word denial, but some guys actually were granted evidence you ever hear, and that is like the pinnacle of success as a jailhouse lawyer mm-hmm. to get that Evidence around oh, yeah. hearing. Finally, we're gonna hear. Yeah, not yeah. winning anything, but just yeah. to get in the court, just to be heard, just to open it up. <laughs> you, you think you know? You think <laughs> you think you want something, but you haven't. And so many guys, man, I tell them, listen, bro, you get that shot. I'm not gonna be there with you. You're gonna have to speak for yourself, or you will have to know enough to explain your issue to the court appointed lawyer. If you can't hire a lawyer yourself. Mm-hmm. And they, they just didn't want, they didn't understand that. Bruce, they would go down in that courtroom without approving, I mean, applying themselves to their own case, depending on jailhouse lawyers. And the judge would simply ask them stuff like, okay, I got you writ. 
Tell me a little bit about the facts and why you think I should grant you relief. And Bruce, so many times these brothers would come back denied because mm. they couldn't express or explain to the judge what their legal issue was. Yeah. And you know, and I, I, I wish that they would allow people, I had a few people try to call me in as a as an expert witness. We filed motions like that. We filed all sorts of, I started signing things, uh, amicus appellator, like friend of the appellate and, uh, and just like different things to try to figure out how to get in next to the person because as you know, as, as, as you know, a lot of people know, but a lot of people don't know. I mean, when you get in there in that post conviction, your right to counsel is, is, uh, is, is flimsy at best. And so a lot of people are literally stuck on their own after that direct appeal. And then the direct appeal, you're stuck with just what was raised at trial. And if your whole point was my trial should have gone differently, like other evidence in it, other objections made, et cetera, et cetera, you can't even make that until after the direct appeal. And so now you're on your own and you're lucky if you got a guy like Ronald Marshall next to you and, and, but then you got to go, like you said, you got to go in there by yourself. It's crazy, man. Yeah, it's crazy. But you know what else is crazy? Something I, I figured out just by litigating so many cases. So as we know, there is a, a, a small percentage, but a very relevant percentage of guys who are wrongfully convicted. Mm-hmm. That shouldn't happen. No one should be wrongfully convicted of a crime. I get that. Mm-hmm. And the Innocent Project does a terrific job, man, helping those guys who are wrongfully convicted. But there is another larger percentage of guys, Bruce, who are also wrongfully convicted. When you speak about wrongfully convicted, you're talking about that Eighth Amendment. Mm. No one is to be convicted or sentenced to I mean, harsh and cruel and unusual punishment. So to convict an innocent man, that's cruel and unusual punishment. So that's why the conviction is wrong, because it violates that Eighth Amendment, which is the Constitution. But there are a bunch of other convictions that also were obtained in violation of the Constitution. But those guys may not have been wrongfully convicted of the crime. Mm -hmm. They may not be innocent of the crime, but yet their conviction was obtained in violation of that Constitution. So my point is this. I think we should focus more attention on that large percentage of individuals who may be guilty, but their conviction was obtained in violation of that constitution. And that mm-hmm. still, in essence, is a wrongful conviction. Yeah, I agree, you know, and you know, I used to see a lot of folks where I was just like, all right, this person was, you know, air quotes, rightfully convicted, but they were over convicted. And so I would see people that are over convicted left and right, and I'd be like, how is it you're doing 20 years behind this? You know, or, or yeah, you did this little thing, but you didn't do the other three things that they got you for. And so it's like they just throw, when they literally throw the book at somebody, it hits them and knocks them out cold when really they should be like throwing the leaflet at them or something like that. And so we've got all these people that are doing life, doing 50, doing 20, that, you know, if it was a, a, just a sense of just an objective, fair legal process, you'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, what they did was like worth five years, two years, one year, you know, based on, on you know, what, what they normally should be doing. But I think you're right, man. So what, what are some of the, you know, we've been dealing with a lot of some of the procedural things uh, here and trying to make structural changes. You know, we've identified a couple of issues like the, you know, how the long wait time to charge somebody, holding them without bail, impacts someone's ability to prepare a defense, impacts someone's, you know, wears them down to, to plead out. But what are some of the things that you see in terms of a pattern, a structure 
to try to cut down on those wrongful convictions? What are some of the rules that we might be able to, to, to shore up? Okay, so from, from what I understand, Bruce, what we can do, the first thing we can do is to remove that, that prescriptive time period of the post-conviction proceedings. Mm. You know, it takes, it, it, it takes a lawyer four to six years, three mm-hmm. years, to earn a law degree. And that is a person who know how to read and write effectively well. Whereas it may take someone who do not know how to read and write 10 years mm-hmm. to even begin to learn law. And a lot of guys are stuck behind that procedural bar because they were unable to have their claims filed in a timely fashion. Yeah. So I think we should eliminate the procedural, the one, the two-year procedural bar and just allow it to be whenever these guys are able to file. Mm-hmm. Because the, the court have to take into consideration that the number of people who are being convicted for crimes are from real disenfranchised environments, and normally these guys have dropped out of school. So that's those are factors that give rise to crimogenic circumstances, lack of education. And I think the, I think the system needs to take that into consideration as just convicting guys and just throw them away. Another thing that I find horribly wrong with the entire system is that parole process. Mm. I believe that the parole board has too much power over guys' life. For example, I have a buddy. His name is Andre Randolph. This guy has been incarcerated since he's 17 years old. He's earned three degrees. He's been incarcerated 27 years now. He hasn't had a write-up in eight years. He went before the parole board three times. And this, they, they constantly, repeatedly denying this guy mm. because the parole board has that discretion. There is no standard set in place by which to judge a guy's rehabilitative measures. Yeah. The parole board doesn't respect that. So the, the statute merely says that the parole board may grant parole eligibility despite this guy having earned numerous degrees, having had a write-up in 20 years. That should be a criteria with a check and balance, if a guy meets A through Z, then the parole board shall grant him parole as opposed to me. And I think we'll see more guys returning into society than the few we're seeing that make the parole process. Yeah, you know, it's, it's something that I, I thought about a lot, you know, and like where, where I was at, you know, pretty much everybody got a shot at parole, right? And, you know, whether they got it or not is a different story. But, you know, even guys that were doing 30 years, they go up in 10. Doing 20 years, you go up in a third. You know, doing 60 years, you go up in 10. You know, doing a life sentence, it used to be 10, then it was 15, then it was 20, 25. But point being, just the idea that you might or might not get parole was a, like a, a normal thing. But it you know, as you see more and more of your friends go up and then you go up yourself, I went up three times, and you realize that, like, the people that are making this decision have never even met me. They've got no idea who I am, and they're going off of, like, some letters maybe from some people on the outside. They're going off of, uh, you know, some police report from, from 20 years ago. They're going off some, even a victim statement where it's like, that person's never met you either so, most of the time. So it's like all the things that they're factoring in are so far removed from who the person is and then they just loom over you and give you like a couple minutes to speak and it's like make your case and it's like oh you now you want me to tell you like who I am what I'm about the transformations I've made you know 
like what makes me tick, my goals and dreams. Like you got to have this incredible elevator pitch, <laughs> and it's just totally unrealistic. But you know what they need to be doing is checking in with with the folks you live with, the people like you, the you know the man you're talking about. Like you know him, they should be taking into effect your views of you know his rehabilitation or his preparedness to to be on the outside. And we know on the inside like who's probably going to make it, who's probably not. You know, right? I exactly know what you're talking about, Bruce. I I still think that the legislators should put a, a law in place that targets those individuals who are ready for society, who have proven themselves ready for society, and require that parole board. All they all they need, Bruce, is a simple word change from me to shall. Legislators do that. Parole board have no choice but to grant these guys parole because as long as parole board have that discretion, that unbridled discretion to grant or deny, less men will return to society and more men will be denied parole every single month. Yeah, and or you know maybe there's a way of making it so that there's like a presumption of parole, right? And then they have to rebut that and show why you should not get parole, right? And so here's your eligibility date. And so basically, unless dot, 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 you're going to get the parole. Now, you shank up 15 people on the inside, you're probably not going to get the parole, right? <laughs> but, you know, you're doing all the right things. It should be just the presumptive parole. And, um, you know, I agree with that. That would be a huge thing to, you know, and give a lot of hope to people. Exactly. Uh, I've seen a hope inflate as a result of guys being denied. I've seen it boost. I watched guys hold on for the parole process, yeah, and, and, listen, and listen, Bruce, once you get denied on a violent crime, it's every two years. But I've seen guys hold on eight years for that parole process and four times receive denials, and I saw the hope disappear. I've seen it. I've seen it, and next thing you know, he's jugging somebody up, he's lost his mind, he's in a cell block going, digressing, and this is a guy who was in the education department teaching other offenders how to read and write. This is a guy who actually taken uh, external degree courses. This is a guy who, who, who have conquered every Votech or degree course that the Department of Correction has to offer, but yet they are constantly telling this guy parole denied because of the nature of the offense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, Makes that's sense. just not being seen as a person, right? You're just no. being seen as a as a stat, a, a, a list on the on the sheet. But you know, speaking of hope, I mean, you were on the inside when the 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 yes on two campaign, the the statewide constitutional amendment, uh, was passed to get rid of the non unanimous jury. Right. right. I mean, what was the vibe like on the inside during that whole? Man, see, I'll I never forget. I was in the law library this time, man, when it when the first when Ramos was first decided, then Edwards was pending. And I would never forget the violence that was once present in the prison where I was housed at disappeared. Mm. It disappeared. There were no fights, there were no stabbings. There wasn't even any arguments. Guys were running around yelling, 10-2, man, about to go home. I got that 10-2, baby. They about to let me out here. Mm. And these are guys who I know personally were responsible for a large percentage of the violent crimes committed mm. in the prison system. 
So when this 10 2 thing come about, it gave these guys hope. Mm. I've seen so many, I've never seen that many guys in my life in prison feel good about being in prison during the time of the 10 2 circumstances came about. But then Edwards was decided. Mm -hmm. They put the retroactivity into Louisiana's hand. Told them, y'all deal with that on the state level. <laughs> and that right there, and I'll never forget when it happened, I seen the faces, I heard the destructive comments from guys who were like fed up. Mm-hmm. They want to take that anger out on someone close to them, someone that lived in the prison system with them. I heard it. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I was on my way out. I was in court. I was going back and forth to court. And I felt for them guys. I felt real sympathetic and empathetic toward everything they was going through. I felt and I just shook my head because I felt like it was wrong. Exactly. Well, now, I mean, so, you know, fast forward uh, some months, you know, and you, you're on the outside and you, know, you got a new gig. You're part of a, a squad now. Uh, tell, tell us about your new job. Okay, so, man, I met, I think my job, was spearheaded by a real good friend, Miss Emily Pons, and I think she was the, she'll never admit it, <laughs> but I actually think she actually put that word in, but then I met a real cool white dude named Bruce Riley. <laughs> I sat down with Mr. Norris Henderson, and it all came together. Uh, it came together, and I'm, I'm forever grateful to Bruce Norris as well as Miss Emily. Miss Emily gave me my first part-time job, and I went to that office every single day on time, prepared to work because it felt good to be free, but it also felt enormously good to be to have a legitimate job. And then the discussion came about me working with Vote. And I was like, working with Vote? I said, hell yeah, I work with <laughs> Vote, man. I mean, that's winners. They got champions over there. I mean, they got champions over there, guys who've been through what I've been through, and now they are power brokers in this p- political world. Of course I would mind working with Vote. Yeah, yeah, I want to work with Vote. I want to be a part of the team because the work that Vote is doing, that's a part of my DNA. That's what I do. Mm-hmm. Not as big as voting in prison. Man, I protested everything that was wrong. Mm-hmm. So now I have a platform with Vote with some true champions on the team. Yeah, I think I'm winning that vote because we're doing work that's going to impact people's lives and change the quality of their lives. So yeah, I feel good about working with Vote. I'm going to be there for a while. That's what's up. You know, we, you know, we started, uh, you know, a, a group of jailhouse lawyers, right? And you know, and, and I guess we're still going. And so to kind of bring you into the squad, you know, as this thing's moving, you know, fresh outs so that gives a nice fresh perspective of like what the pulse is right there. You know, Norris been on a while, been on a while. The people been on a while. Um, and then we got some other people who never went in, thankfully. You know, and. And want to team you up with 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 all that, and uh, and you know take you along, kind of at whatever pace feels right. You know, I, no no one, you know, I, I know how it feels, right? It's like I don't need to go slow, right? I just need to go whatever pace I can I can handle, right? And so I think, you know, as you do things like 
get a car. <laughs> <laughs> I seen you pushing a whip today. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> Way better than my piece of crap Honda Accord <laughs> I had. Oh, man. That Uber car is, is real deal, <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, but I've been out like 16 years. Oh, right. <laughs> but, but my first car, man. <laughs> I knew, yeah. The, the guy I sold it to was like suspicious <laughs> that it didn't even work. And I was like, nah, man. I sold it for like $1,000. You know, I bought it for about $1,000. Like, nah, man. It looks like crap, but the handle's messed up. But yeah, you got you got yourself something that moves. Be careful of that lead foot, you know. Yeah, I am, man. I am. <laughs> I am. So how so how's everything else? Like you know, you've been yeah. Uh, you, you went to. I know you went to a Pelicans game. Wow, that was my <laughs> first Pelicans game. My first time ever going to an NBA game. Dude, I couldn't believe how chill you were. <laughs> like we were in a crowd. We were in a. You, I mean, I you know sometimes you got to remind people like you know prison is a crowd too, right? You're always surrounded by people. Right. It's noisy and all this and that. But you know you had no sense of uh, what's that agoraphobia? One of them phobias, crowdophobia. Right. <laughs> I have my environmental phobias, but not in that setting right there, mm-hmm. man. I felt so at peace sitting in that Pelican Stadium, the Smoothie King, mm-hmm. for the first time. And I was just taking it all in because my only view of that basketball arena was through a television in the TV room of a prison. Mm. And I watched the game, and I, but it, 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 nothing could compare to sitting inside that arena that day watching the Pelicans play basketball. It, it, I mean, just fresh out of prison, I was on like four <laughs> or five days, yeah. and already I'm in a game. So my entire transition from prison or from change to change has been relatively smooth because I'm surrounded by a great group of people, man, and I am forever grateful for them. My yeah. family, as well as the pioneers that vote, well as Miss Emily, she believed in me, vote believes in me, and that's where I'm at. That's why I'm here. Yeah, and don't you know? Don't hesitate to ask people stuff either. You know, sometimes our pride goeth before the fall, and uh, you know, but at the same time. I might give you some advice that I got once from one of my homies when uh, we were living together, and I was like, "Yo, man, can you can you uh, can you hook hook my computer up to the copier or get this to print?" And he was like, "If I do it for you, you're always gonna need me. You can figure it out. You're a smart, dude." I was like, "Man, screw you, man." <laughs> but my boy Dre, he was on point, you know, and <laughs> and so he was trying to help me out. And you know, sometimes you know, I'm, I personally may say like, "You can figure that out." And it's good for you just to kind of figure out sometimes the architecture, you computer stuff, right? Like once you figure out a few programs, you know, you start to learn like intuitively where things are, are mapped out. You can like, you know where to click the settings, you know what to go, what, what's sort of missing, what's wrong. Uh, if you're trying to connect a computer to a copier, all this little stuff. Once you get enough rhythm, it doesn't take too long. And then you just kind of know how it's built. Same with that phone, right? You figure out how it's built and then you can use it as a tool just like any other tool in the shed, right. you know. I think that's been my 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 only hiccup mm-hmm. dealing with that phone and that Chromebook. <laughs> that's been my hiccup, cause I may click a button and the screen may change, and I'll be like, "Man, how do I get back?" Well, we got I, a nicer computer for you though. It's sitting at work. We got, we yeah! got yeah, we got a MacBook for you. So <laughs> you can learn that one instead. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 that's, that's deal, man. I, I, cause that Chromebook is really complicated, but. I think my spirit is starting to blend with it. I'm starting mm-hmm. to understand, like you said, because I be on it every day. I litigate virtually at home, mm-hmm. and when I come to work, I bring a women to work on vote stuff. So, like you said, the more I play with it, 
and find that rhythm with it. Mm-hmm. I know what to click, what not to click, and if I click something, I know how to click back and get where I was at. So yeah, it, it's uh, we are blending, we are becoming, we are sinking. <laughs> well, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. So you know, as you need to do something on that computer, whether it's be looking up cases or whatever, you know, uh, you know, like when I first got on Westlaw, the computerized thing, I was like, damn. Look at this! Look at this power. This is better than, than the, the paper books in the library. And I remember I asked this lady at, uh, at at law school. She was like the the representative for Westlaw, or Lexis, one of the two. And I was like, um, I'm well. I'm really familiar with with shepherdizing and, and researching, and and I'm just you know I'm trying to learn better about just the layout of the the architecture of like you know where where everything is. And I was wondering if I could have like a just like a one on one to kind of go through the program a little. And she was like, how do you, well, how are you experienced with like researching and stuff and, and don't know the program? And I was like, oh, there's this thing called books. <laughs> <laughs> she was stunned. She didn't know that I was in the joint, but she was just stunned like, what? Who uses books? <laughs> but you know, you get with it, man. You get with it. And, and, and within, I mean, by this time next year. You're going to be fully versed in, in all the things, my man. Yes, I am, Bruce. I will be, man, because I, I actually uh, tab, book tab, how to use a Chromebook effectively. Mm. So every day I spend like 45 minutes in that app. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just understanding different features on the computer and how to make things easier to use. The shortcuts, that's very important. I'm learning that, shortcuts. Yeah, I remember we were in that game. You're trying to figure out how to send a photo. Yeah, what? <laughs> <laughs> See, yeah. I'm still having problems with the iPhone, man. Yeah, it's just it's, all this stuff was new to me, but I welcome it. Uh, just show me that we no longer living in uh, prehistoric dinosaurs, say, or the caveman era where I come from. I say caveman because it's been a long time since my actual presence in society. Mm. So, yeah. You know, it's interesting talking about like just like new tech. I was thinking the other day about a, a situation that everybody knows, uh, you know, the Rodney King beating. And well, what a lot of people don't know is there was a guy across the highway uh, who had recently gotten a gift. I think he was like a carpenter or a plumber or something, but he gotten a gift from like one, someone in his family and it was this camcorder. And he had just took it out of the box. He didn't even really know how to use it. <laughs> and but he saw across the way all this going down and he pulled out this new tech right he's not a videographer not anything and he just he just pointed and hit record and then he got this obviously you know world famous video and now we sort of take for granted that we can record these things and so i think we always need to be looking on the lookout for like new ways of using tools that are out there you know, to our advantage, for the people's advantage. So, uh, you know, I look forward to all the things you learn to do with, with your tech. And just think think like Iron Man. Think like Batman. You know, they're all about the tech. It's all about the tech. Right. <laughs> I'm learning. I'm learning well that this is a tech techno society, and I'm getting that. Well, I look forward to teaching you some of the things that I've learned about just, like, researching and, like, where things are and, like, databases and such. And, you know, and for instance... Uh, you know, some people know I've been doing a lot of, of research um, around campaign finance and looking at, um, you know, looking at contracts, especially around this the sheriff and, you know, what's going on there. And so I went on the, the ethics, uh, Louisiana Ethics Board website, and they've got, you know, drop down for campaign finance reports. 
and you can search uh, for you know any candidate or you know I guess I guess you could search by donor too. I don't really do it that way, but you know I, I look up Marlon Gusman, and then there's all these individual filings, right? And it's kind of hard. That's the other thing too, right? As you know, with like any data set, like how do I read it? How do I sort through it? So you start seeing these you know these dates, these types of things, supplemental, ten days prior to election, annual, these different reports they have to file, and and then you also see that there's a clickable link um, that then opens up. You have your choice of either like one big PDF, or you can download these CSV files. And so that's like an Excel type spreadsheet, and so it stands for like comma save value or something like that. So basically, it'll it'll sort it out into these rows and columns. So I had downloaded all these different um, these columns and rows of you know donors dates. Uh, expenses, dates, purpose of the expense. And what I did was rather than have to look at them all individually, I merged them all into very painstakingly. I know there was like a probably a shortcut if I was a real guru on this stuff, but I sort of like one by one, you know, loaded them into this this one Excel spreadsheet. And then I could do things like sort it by name. And so for instance, if Securus was there, like like all nine Securus donations would be like in a row. And then I could go and add up like, oh, here's the total Securus has given, you know, the phone operator. Uh, here's the total that Heyman Capital has given. But then I could do things like, you know, some guy like Barry Blanton in Dallas, Texas, given $5,000. I'm like, well, who's this guy? So I'd go, I'd Google him up. And one thing I found was between LinkedIn, which is a lot of people's professional relationships, their resumes are right there. Uh, it's kind of like a Facebook for like, like working and stuff, um, or like the there's an Open Gov uh, uh, website that has all the Secretary of State filings of this LLC, this company, and then I'll say like who's the agent, right? And so you might start some some LLC, you know, called uh, you know R R M LLC or whatever, you know, and then you look and it's like you know it's run by Ronald Marshall. But then you'll try to look and you'll be like, okay, RMLLC doesn't do anything else, it seems. You just use it as a, a pass-through for your taxes or whatever. And so then I was able to like link these different like shell companies with actual individuals. And then I'd be able to see their spouses. And I'd be able to see like, okay, like Mary Hatcher and, and Billy Hatcher or whatever, they're both married. They're both part of like MBH Capital. And so then you start asking these questions like, what's this got to do with this sheriff race? And so eventually what I had to do was kind of put it all together. And um, so what I want to do is actually I'm going to share with you this sort of thesis that I put together and something I feel like everybody should be should be paying attention to, uh, you know, particularly voters, particularly um, who knows the feds and be able to look at this person who's been in power for, for 25 years and try to figure it out, but but this is basically the architecture of mass incarceration. And people use the phrase mass incarceration as an abstract idea without details. Very few names, corporations, and politicians who perpetuate and benefit from mass incarceration. But let's take a look, a closer look, at just one agency within the interlocking gulag that traverses coast to coast in this country more than any other. Let's take a look at the Orleans Parish Sheriff's Office or OPSO, which prior to Hurricane Katrina had over 6,000 people detained in our small city 
far and away the highest incarceration rate in the world. This agency has been run by Sheriff Marlon Gussman since 2004, when the decades-long reign of Sheriff Fody ended, with Fody becoming Louisiana's attorney general. Now, Gussman was a former city council member, and before that, the number two staffer in the Mark Morial administration. So he knew quite well the powers of the OPSO. And one power comes from its independence of city authority. It's a state creation and has the power to tax and spend all to itself. There's no fiscal oversight board and no fiscal board at all. As stated in their latest audit, the OPSO grants all power to one elected official to hire and fire, contract with any vendor for any amount. The sheriff runs what's called a law enforcement district, and he raises part of the funds through municipal bonds that appear on the voter ballots every so often as the public safety bond. And so getting voters to approve giving away millions of ad valorem taxes towards mass incarceration, well, it requires a general support of law enforcement and imprisonment. Combined with some good old-fashioned fear-mongering, perhaps some xenophobia, a little racism, and an almost cult-like devotion to punishment. And so this is how we built the American tough-on-crime mantra out of the vestiges of Jim Crow, which in turn was an outcropping of slavery. But how to get the bond money? Well, first someone needs to package deal. So bond attorneys, such as ones have donated to Gusman's campaign, they find the money from the finance world. It could be hedge funds and the sort like Heyman Capital or Glen Todd Capital, Preston Hollow Capital, MBH Partners, 24th Parallel Holdings, Toby Piper Investments, Elon Sasso, Blue Star Land, Joe and Beverly Hickman. All of them are out of Texas, and they all and their principals uh, and their spouses donate to Sheriff Gusman. So I don't know if they have anything to do with these particular bonds, but just saying, there may be a connection there. And anyone can see on the Louisiana Ethics website, which hosts all these campaign finance reports. So considering most of them, like Kyle Bass and Clifford Weiner, are major donors on the national GOP scene, it may seem odd that they donate to a black Democrat sheriff in New Orleans. But whether they're personal friends or have business with OPSO, their donations make them a part of the architecture of mass incarceration. So Mary Hatcher of MBH and Glenn Todd, uh, she gave $3,000 over the maximum 5K this election cycle alone. So combine her 8K with her husband, her company, and who knows about her friends, and it makes you wonder why so much support for a small-town sheriff. But back to the bonds. All that money gets fronted to the sheriff, who then has the obligation to dole it out to the other beneficiaries, like the courts, forensic lab, district attorney, and somewhere along the way, the assessor must come into play in terms of assessing the property values to be taxed and other parts of the city government in regards to the sales taxes, with the basic reality that this is how tax dollars make their way to an agency. But as for the bond, that's money that's provided up front. The sheriff presumably has the responsibility of paying it back to the hedge fund with commissions and fees on, for instance, a $63 million deal that has to be a nice tidy sum. So oddly enough, according to the OPSO 2019 audit, which is the most recent one, and it's available on the OPSO website, the sheriff has no written policies for debt service. Thus, a very complex financial deal could, in theory, be done on a whim. For instance, how long can money be held onto before it needs to be transferred to one place or the next? But this is where we must discuss oversight. Now remember, OPSO is not under city authority does not need to post its contracts or dealing anywhere publicly, and does not even submit to the usual reviews of the city ethics board. 
OPSO does, however, get audited annually by a firm called Possilway and Netterville, or PNN. They've done those audits over the entire course of Gusman's 17 years in office. By sheer coincidence, or not, the firm has also done Gusman's campaign finance reports for the same time. In fact, Albert Joey Richard, a principal with PNN, prepared Gusman's campaign finance reports as far back as 2000 and was part of Gusman's statement of organization as a sheriff candidate in 2006. And for clarity, he he filled out the rest of Fody's seat uh, when he started in 2004, when Fody became the Attorney General, and then he got reelected. When the Office of Inspector General filed a report to the Louisiana Board of Accountants some years ago, uh, you know the local Office of Inspector General felt that it was a conflict that the same accounting firm is doing both the audits and the campaign finance reports. I mean, clearly, Gusman sees no conflict, or else he would have done something about it. But either way, the, the PNN audit was massively de- delayed since 2019 because, according to OPSO, the sheriff furloughed their entire accounting department during COVID. So how anyone got paid is a mystery if they couldn't also support an audit. But in the audit, besides noting there's no written policy for debt service, PNN notes millions of dollars sitting in the bank from those public safety bonds. So there were two bonds that were raised, and it shows the money that was doled out to the DA, to the clerk of courts for the forensic lab. Uh, and it also shows the money that's still being held onto. Millions of dollars still being held onto. And this is like public reported by his conflicted auditor. So imagine what's not being public and reported. But like, why do we need to raise all this money when they're clear they're not even using it? So, you know, mass incarceration, there's this thing called the prison industrial complex. And it's got businesses to pay and and people just like any other industry. So leaving aside the humanitarian component and controversies Hurricane Katrina brought in August 2005, the aftermath of the disaster brought billions of dollars in reconstruction money from FEMA. Hindsight gives us great many scandals and prison sentences that came from having all those hands in a massive cookie jar, particularly amongst the political class at the time. And these were all Gusman's people. And prior jail complex had over 6,000 people. And then despite having a city that became a third the size of pre-Katrina, Gusman still advocated for a 7,000-bed complex. This is what he wanted to build with the FEMA money. So mass incarceration math, of course, requires taxpayers to fully fund each person who is incarcerated. A bed, food, uniform, everything else. So with Louisiana's unique laws that allow a district attorney to wait two months before charging someone with a crime, and the relative ease for a magistrate court to set high or no bonds, it becomes easy to see how New Orleans could have 7,000 people in jail, awaiting trial on things as basic as public disturbance for months on end. Add in the barbaric Jim Crow non-numerous jury laws at the time, along with the absence of a public, public defender system at the time, along with jails being paid on a per diem basis per incarcerated person, and Louisiana's system had long been a cash cow, the perfect case study for the prison industry. Now, judges and bail bondsmen in New Orleans have already been through their own scandals around slush funds, excessive fees, and much more, so it was a boon for fundraising to have district attorneys all too ready to max out the detention. But back to the jail. Maybe it wasn't fixable after the flooding, maybe it was. Either way, millions of federal tax dollars were earmarked by FEMA for, quote, public safety, 
All those dollars go somewhere. And some of us have different definitions of the term public safety. But architecture firms, they design the whole overall project. Firms like Grace Hebert Architects and Jerry Hebert, who have had their own settlement with the ethics board for nepotism and no contract bidding, and no big contracting. Uh, I. William Sizzler and Sizzler Thompson Brown. There's Woodward Design, Paul Flower, Paul Flower Holdings, Perez, a professional corporation, Linfield, Hunter & Julius, even their PAC, Professional Service Industries PAC, Burke Klein Peter Inc., Architect, Emory Hegedus, and Shirley Moore, what do they all have in common? Well, at least some, if not all, got contracts with OPSO to build the jail complex. But all of them are listed as donors to Gusman. Thus, they're all part of the industry. Well, who else? Well, engineers who are also donors, such as ECM Consultants, Oscar C. and Etvelina Valdez, Camp Dresser McKee, which is a big old firm with corruption cases in India and Vietnam. And it begs the fundamental question, what do you got to do to get a big contract? Well, then you have Kerwin Julian, Julian Engineering, CNS Consulting, Mohammed Danish and Bulbous Environmental and Logistics, Shrank Peterson, Meyer Engineers, Jeffrey Huseman and Associates. The list goes on. It includes huge outfits like Montgomery Watson Americas, the McDonald Group, and McDonald Archer Western Joint Venture out of Chicago, all of them donors. Nothing will bring people together across the country more than a mega million dollar construction project. That gets us to Ozani Construction out of Cleveland, who did get a huge contract and is still on the payroll, along with other firms large and small. Hard Rock Construction, Landis Construction, Marrero Cuvion, the list is huge. These are all donors to Gusman's campaign. Just a snippet, to be clear a huge spreadsheet that's available on our website, votersorganized.org, and people can download it, search it, whatever they want to do with it. But this all begs the age-old question, what came first, the contract or the contribution? So you got some people that are convicted of straight-up kickback schemes with OPSO, like Kendall Marquar of K&D Earthworks, who funneled at least $15,000 into the Gusman campaign, and that contribution wasn't even part of the actual cash kickback operation. The mass incarceration industry looks like DRC Emergency Services, Equipment Leasing LLC, and Jeffrey Isaacson, a former New Orleans FBI agent who went down for bribing the Plaquemines Parish Sheriff just down the river. And Isaacson was hired by Ozani in the construction of the jail, and the cost overruns were going off the charts. But the taxpayers were not minding the cost overruns. Only OPSO, who hired Mike Gaffney of Herndon, to approve them. Now, Herndon's still on the OPSO payroll years later as a loyal Gusman donor and was sued by Herbert Architects for these cost overruns being forced upon them. The costs, of course, all coming from our public dollars. And it makes you wonder how many people and subcontracts are pushed. I want you to pay this person to be part of this. Pay this person to be part of that. But, you know, Gaffney, Gaffney they uh, he hired Crowley Consulting at one point, which was later exposed as a front group for the Sens family. Paul Sens, this robe, robe judge, and his brother John Sens, who was Marlon Gusman's purchasing boss, his number two, who was also convicted for a host of kickback schemes at the taxpayer's expense. Gusman hired Paul Sens' wife Anne at a cushy job to do appraisals, which she had never done before, while Sens hired Gusman's wife along with 18 members of his own family. So many small entities will trace back to relations such as a nephew, Dan Crowley of Crowley Consulting, all the taxpayer's expense. Maneuverings like these require deep relationships, and it's con coincidental that Sens and Gusmans were co-workers back in the Morial administration, along with other donors and since-convicted people like Stanford Pampy Barr, 
You know, Barr was an NOPD detective partner with Bill Schultz, another Gusman donor who spent time in prison due to corruption on the backs of taxpayer funds. And just a little side note, there's a major difference between being born behind the eight ball, struggling to survive as a child, and committing crimes as a teenager out of poverty, trauma, or desperation, and then being someone with a college degree who has been vested with the public trust to work in government who commits crimes. But the prison industrial complex feasts on the struggles of American poverty, addiction, mental health, and racism. The industry has names, and a snapshot can be seen just by seeing how many of one sheriff's donors match up with people making money off the incarceration of others, profiteering on people, on flesh, which is similar to the slave trade that prisons arose from. Why would OPSO pay outlandish amounts of money to Metro services for incredibly expensive office supplies? Well, it's not their money, and it may help that Metro and owner Raymond Schlotecker are huge donors to Gusman, or perhaps because Raymond is the son-in-law of OPSO Chief Deputy Gerald Erson, whose wife Karen, both Gusman donors, is an administrator of First City Court where the evictions and foreclosures take place, but a little more on that later. So Chief Deputy Erson, he pled guilty to wire fraud based on the scam work details he was running with OPSO staff. Deputies would pay into a fund, and most also appear on Gusman's donor list, to be eligible for these extra pay security details. So although they were supposed to be moonlighting and working on the side, it turns out they'd be either skipping their post of the jail or not showing up for the detail at a store, second line, or wedding. So we're always hearing about the staffing shortages, and every time you see a sheriff uh, deputy who's maybe out in the streets doing something else, you kind of wonder, is he or she actually being paid to be in you know, e-block right now, and here you are at a wedding. But you know, coincidentally, a 2021 expose is now revealing that members of NOPD are accused of the same scheme, the double-dipping scheme, the detail scheme. So for Gusman to not know what Erson was up to is unbelievable. Or for that matter, the scam of Roy Austin, another top OPSO official comrade who was running Austin sales and service to do the, essentially the same thing. But staffing is difficult in any business, which is why OPSO contracts with a, a firm to help choose the right people while also being Gusman donors their website touts the ability to hire people who would not be a disruption. And they have uh, like psychologists to figure out who would not be a disruption. And I just kind of wonder what they would consider to be a disruption. But one disruptive staffer, however, was Sergeant Ladd. This guy was a career law enforcement officer. He sought to fi- finish out his career doing internal investigations for OPSO. Big mistake. Uh, He had 30 years under his belt, and just a few more would allow him to get his entire pension of $400,000 in one lump sum. They call it the drop. So just before the new jail was finished, however, he got put on a case of a man who was in work release who was being transported around the city to see his girlfriend get other perks. So the sheriff, you know, he keeps two-thirds of the pay for everyone in work release. So for this man to be getting paid by OPSO to work on HVAC equipment, ultimately paid by the taxpayers, Two-thirds of his pay would cycle back into the OPSO budget. But besides all that, Sergeant Ladd opened up an investigation of who was facilitating these daily escapes and even put geo-trackers on the OPSO vehicles to try to figure this thing out. Eventually, when he reported his findings to the higher-ups, Ladd was told to shut down the investigation as the man was uh, transferred back to DOC custody and they put a stop to the escapes. So, you know, case closed, moving on and people can understand maybe why that they didn't want to have a big scene. But a couple weeks later, uh, when Ladd revealed that the man was spotted having escaped once again, 
that he was not actually transferred back to DOC custody, Ladd was suspended immediately. After 30 days with no pay, no notice, and no discipline hearing in sight, he opted to take his retirement to avoid any deeper poverty. And this poor guy, he was out to buy a house at the very time he's going to close, and now he's on this no-pay suspension and not being told like why or how or when he's going to come off of it. So in November 2021, years later, of course, it's very similar to people in the joint trying to get their cases heard, the lad's case against OPSO went to trial in Judge Alan Hazer's court. Right now, a ruling is pending. So having people, uh, you know, like Sens, Erson, and Austin, um, you know, it appears the lad hiring would be viewed as a mistake by OPSO. But you know, all these staff and incarcerated people, they they all need uniforms, of course. And big time donors like Gleot Sanitary Supplies, American Police Equipment, Logo Express, they will take care of all those needs. Uh, uniform staff need radios and gear and to the multi-million dollar Motorola lease. And one would expect that one of the major donors, perhaps Tomba Communications, which is a major donor, is part of that contract, just a guess. Would it be a better deal to lease or buy? Better deal for whom is the operative question. I'm sure it was a great deal for somebody. Now leasing is also the way OPSO goes with their vehicles, for which there is a fleet that is roughly as many as there are staff. And we just found out that about 40% of their staff has like a suspended license. So then you wonder why do you have like 700 vehicles for like 800 staff and so many people for some reason can't drive. Um, but perhaps that is a design. Uh, you know, someone got a nice contract for all those leases. And we all know that needs to be renewed every couple of years. And or you buy out the contract. Either way, there must be a massive car insurance bill, particularly considering the potential dra- dangerous driving situations for law enforcement. And then there's also maintenance. Now, it seems odd that the vehicle maintenance contract would be so massive for these, one would think, new vehicles, especially ones that simply stay within a few blocks of the jail and courthouse. But it also isn't evident if OPSO has revised their practice, as instructed by the Louisiana Legislative Auditor only a couple years ago, to keep invoices and track maintenance records. Before, they were just winging it. Are they still winging it? Who knows? It's also odd that the, the main OPSO maintenance contract is with a big-time donor because their website says uh, on it, you know, one of the few contractors actually has a website, they don't actually put parts on the vehicle. They just sell parts. But, you know, perhaps they have a special service for OPSO considering the size of the contract, and maybe that's the only place that they actually do that kind of mechanic work. Um, other contracts are more straightforward. One would assume that dumping the trash is very profitable, considering all the major contractors have donated heavily at different points in time, from River Parish to Metro Disposal. Uh, you know, River Parish Disposal and, and Walden Fromeyer currently own that contract, and it's huge. Uh, and, of course, the sheriff has a constitutional obligation to keep people alive while in his custody, and people have a right to both food and medical care. Now, over the course of, of a few years, you know, several prison food companies have been large donors, including the current contract winner, Summit. It's slightly strange that OPSO spends so much money on out-of-state food suppliers considering the multi-million dollar kitchen construction, the local culinary industry, and nearly free incarcerated labor. But for whatever reason, they got to send the money out of state. Uh, And everyone knows that jail food includes things which can't even be found in the free world, like neutral loaf. And so the commissary becomes a means not just for perks, but survival. Extra food, along with soap, shampoo, feminine hygiene products, and writing materials, all come at a cost, with a severe markup, of course. 
Now, the right to sell in such a literally captive market with an exclusive contract is big business. Those profiteers can all be seen on Gusman's donor list, and uh, and you know, and they're all out-of-state vendors. Uh, the corporation isn't the only ones to cash in on this price gouging scheme, as there is a cut of the proceeds that go to OPSO. How big a cut, of course, is open to negotiation, but not by the people actually buying the products, of course. This is the same monopolized, contracted on your behalf system as the notorious jail phones. While most people in the free world pay under $100 a month for unlimited calls anywhere in the country, incarcerated people and their families will get roughly an hour and a half of talking for the same price. Considering people in OPSO are overwhelmingly pre-trial and many have yet to even be charged, these outrageous prices get in the way of people making family arrangements in an emergency and preparing their own defense, trying to keep their jobs or housing, and even stunts the preparation for their release. About 15,000 people go into OPSO every year, and with an average population under 800, most are just trying to keep their lives together for a few days, a few weeks, or a few months, and then they're back onto the street. So that phone is entirely crucial. Now the sheriff controls that contracting power, and to what extent re-entering rehabilitation and family unity is possible. One of his largest donors, of course, is Securus, the Texas-based company that also owns JPay and has bought up many of the smaller operators, and whose names can be seen in older campaign reports. Now, oddly enough, a local Securus technician, according to LinkedIn, gave Gusman a $2,500 campaign contribution. Now, without having any idea how much that position pays, it seems Miss Ricky Walls really loves her boss. But with donors like NCIC, Inmate Calling Solutions, Ally Telecom, Mitch Khalifa, all giving Gusman funding, he is clearly well appreciated by the telephone industry. Now, as most everyone knows, the jail has long had troubles with keeping a safe and constitutionally sound jail. And that is regardless of who has these contracts. This is why there's a consent decree, which the federal court is a way of being an intermediary between the lawyers and incarcerated people versus the lawyers for the sheriff. Now, part of that consent decree revolves around poor medical and mental health care. Now, Gusman's donor list includes former medical director, Dr. Samuel Gore, former mental health director, Dr. Charles Higgins, along with LaShonda Franklin and Crescent City Pharmacy, Correct Health, Benny Musso, Robert Ryan, Correct Care Pack, Correct Care Solutions, a.k.a. WellPath, Tulane Drug Analysis and Jeffrey Mendler, Gilbert Zillner and Diamond Drugs. Oh, and one of his donors is Dr. Carl Reddix, uh, everyone's most transparent prison health care provider. Not only was he convicted uh, for bribing Mississippi DOC officials and sentenced to six years in the feds, he was also a donor of Gusman. So while 67 people have died in OPSO during Gusman's tenure, 11 died without even being charged with a crime, according to a recent report done out of Loyola Law School with Professor Andrea Armstrong. Now, with so many donors coming from the healthcare realm, one would think that the federal court's jail monitors would be giving rave reviews. But they aren't. Now, while Gusman has pushed for more prison construction for years, and now under the rationale of providing mental health treatment, Sheriff Gusman reported to the city council in his annual request for funding the amount of money being currently spent on such treatment. Now, for the number of patients they served, it came out to be a shade under $40,000 per patient. Now, while he reports the average stay is up to 100 days because of COVID and lack of trials, we're talking $40,000 of mental health treatment for 100 days, if that. Um, but, you know, viewers of the Netflix show Jailbirds, Jailbirds New Orleans, uh, 
which was shot inside Gusman's jail at the onset of COVID-19, saw mental health treatment consist of one thing, pill call, during which pretrial women you know, got their meds, some sold it to others to get high off them. Obviously, people are, are struggling quite a bit at that initial phase of, of incarceration. You know, but this show, created in conjunction with 44 Blue Productions, was revealed to be a pro-OPSO propaganda, with Guthman holding the right to screen and block certain footage or storylines. Now, despite this, there was never a rehabilitative or mental health program even mentioned in the show. Emails obtained through public records requests that we obtained through Emily, of, of all lawyers, uh, revealed the level of involvement among some of the highest-ranking individuals at OPSO, particularly Blake R. Curry, who is considered to be OPSO's general counsel. R. Curry is allegedly a contractor with OPSO and not full-time staff. Not quite sure here, but this is what I'm told. Who also takes on other clients through his firm, Rodrigue and R. Curry, which we do know happens, who also donates to the Gusman campaign. Now, emails between Gusman and R. Curry relating to the Netflix were blacked out. So another lawyer that obviously is hired uh, cited attorney-client privilege, which only applies to active litigation work product. That legal argument still pending, and OPSO never provided a signed agreement between anyone and 44 Blue Productions, and publicly explained that staff made their own independent agreements with the production company which was filmed on OPSO premises during OPSO staff shifts. So there's no indication that any of the pretrial detainees uh, whose lawyers were not contacted about the show were given anything at all. Gus, considering Gusman's own public views that basically everyone in custody has mental health issues, it is unclear if any of the medical contractors were consulted either. At any rate, not long after release from OPSO, two of the incarcerated women featured in that Netflix show have unfortunately died. So I think that's a little comment about rehabilitation and reentry at OPSO. Now, lawyers in litigation are fixtures of OPSO, and one of the primary donors to Gusman is also one of the largest beneficiaries of the budget. Chahardi, Sherman, Williams, Murray are the most public in terms of their lucrative work on the consent decree and also appear as loyal donors to, to Gusman. Now, Usri, Weeks, and Matthew no longer appear on OPSO budget requests but a recent expose within the last few years revealed the firm had pocketed millions of dollars despite OPSO not being able to produce invoices that remotely match up. Now, Alan Usri of the Usri firm was not only a co-founder of the Gusman Campaign Committee with the auditor Joey Richard mentioned earlier, but also employed Blake R. Curry for seven years. So prior to working with Usri, Weeks, and Matthews, R. Curry worked with his now law partner, Laura Rodriguez, under then-District Attorney Leanne Canazero who happens to be Laura's dad. Canizero, of course, played the number one role in people staying in pretrial detention, and for how long. Keeping the numbers up helps those contracts boom, of course, and while there seems to be no contribution to the campaign from Leon, his, wi his wife has written plenty of checks, uh, including one just recently, under a shell corporation, mind you. Lawyers for wrongful deaths typically negotiate a settlement to the families, and those settlements also come out of our tax dollars as do the costs of the federal monitors of the consent decree, along with the two different people Judge Lance Afric has put in charge of the jail during the four years it was determined Gusman could no longer do the job. One compliance director is Darnley Hodge, who is not even referenced during the film of Jailbirds until some late-stage controversies, despite, on paper, him being in charge of the jail. But what was Marlon Gusman doing while the jail management was taken from him? Well, there's an entire civil side of the OPSO. They handle summons, security, evictions, foreclosures, and auctions. 
Basically, they're the muscle for the court. Now, it's a very delicate job as billions of dollars in property pass through their control. Houses, commercial buildings, cars, boats, jewelry, art. Some of these seizures are connected with various financial crises, whether the infamous foreclosure crisis or current pandemic, while others have been impacted by the half-century-long drug war and seizure of assets. The impact of evictions and foreclosures also has an impact on short-term rental and gentrification controversies. But clearly, this is an extremely important aspect of the OPSO's work. Now, without having any personal deep training on real estate transactions, it is self-evident that there are appraisals, titles, financing, real estate attorneys, and court rulings that complete the deal. And clearly, a massive amount of donors in, the re- in this particular realm indicates how many of these o- entities OPSO is likely doing business with. The aforementioned appraisal scandal may have nothing to do with these actual auctions, but others implicated include donors Frank Steyer and Montgomery Steyer Partners, multiple members of the Vakrasan family, and also Herbert Richardson. According to Gusman at the time, appraisers are paid through the bank fees, so it's not his problem if people are unlicensed. Now, repo men, you know, the donors like Jeffrey Denae's Towing Service, Denae Towing, Sammy Zito and Intercoastal Marine and Zito's Towing, and also Rudy Smith, who hosts all those auto auctions, are presumably licensed. Um, title companies love to donate, including Brent Laliberti and Bayou Title, Prudential Title, True Title, Morel Yorsh LLC of NOLA Title Company, and My Tax Sale Resources LLC, all donors. Uh, along the way, our bankers and investment and donors like Iberia Bank, Citizens Union Bank from Shelbyville, Kentucky, Al Copeland Investments, Pin Oak Holdings from San Francisco, Rochelle and Tim Richardson, who own a series of LLCs, Chad David Hadel Investments, and seemingly random people like Michael Schechneider out of Sugarland, Texas, who de- donated over $10,000 between 2014 and 17. Uh, Liberty Bank and their o- owner, Alda McDonald, have long been one of Gusman's largest financial backers over the years. And naturally, all you know, indications are that Liberty is OPSO's primary banker. Now, with interest payments totaling in the hundreds of thousands, there's surely a tidy profit for the institution that's moving those funds around. Now, no list would be complete without combination contractor, uh, you know, with the garbage and the lawyer, security patrolman, real estate mogul, reality TV star Sidney Torres, who's Donet- Donetio Investments, Saro, FQ4 Holdings, IV Capital, and others. They all provide donation pathways to Gusman. Now, Wayne Clark, uh, former director of housing before Katrina, he donates through Clark Housing and CCS Realty. And the auctions and estate sales don't stop at real estate, of course. And the real estate LLCs are far too long to mention. But there are also seemingly random donors like Donald Boyle and Blanchard and Company, Inc., who, who deal coins like another donor, Lucky Coin, uh, also owned by donors, the Georges, who own the local newspaper empire. And then jewelry dealers like uh, Franco Valobra and his jewelry store or, or Dallas uh, mega donor, DeBoer. You know, all these people might have business with uh, these auctions and and whatnot. And it's just really peculiar how many of them are connected to contracts. And the very fact that there's no oversight of the OPSO makes one wonder uh, if it's not the best gig in the country where you can raise your own money and spend it how you like. And all you got to do is give out some free turkeys, some nice tents, and buy an ad in the local church's uh, annual fundraiser booklet. So I really think that 
there's so much more to know. I did this research in just a couple of weeks on the side. And I think that people who are professional researchers, people who are investigators, people that deal with white collar crimes or corruption, uh, they could have a field day by comparing the lists of donors and contractors and really looking about how those transactions take place, particularly on the real estate auction tip. Because we can all imagine how easy it would be to say, just set this one aside for me. Let's pay the bank such and such. And then it goes to me for that much. And we can change the appraisal however we want. We can fabricate the title however we want. But maybe nothing's going on. Maybe it's all above board. We don't know. But so many of his, of his co-workers have since gone to prison over the last you know couple decades. And it just makes you wonder, how are you not running a scandal out of that office? And so with that, I'm just going to leave it there. People should always follow the money. I'm DJ Bruja with my man, Ronald. What do you think of that, Ronald? Powerful, man. It's just told you the, the, the power of research, the power of investigation. If you dig deep into somebody's pockets, you feel able to find all their dirty linen. And listen to that thesis, man. It just tells you that I don't know this city as well as I think I do. And I've been here my entire life besides the 24 years I was incarcerated. Yeah, so take heed. Yeah, there's a lot to lot to learn about the interconnectedness. And, you know, you were saying earlier about, you know, growing up in the Ninth Ward and folks not really, you know, paying mind to politics or thinking their, their vote don't matter, that sort of thing. I mean, this is what, you know, what we're always dealing with. And I think when people look on a national scale, when they think about, you know, how many millions of votes it takes to elect a president or the Electoral College, and they say, like, well... You know, my votes always go Republican way or Democrat way based on the state I live in. Well, that totally deflates all your power. But then when you look on the local level and you see the difference between this candidate and that candidate can be huge and can save us so much money or have so many better programs or salacious programs. And sometimes these votes come down to a thousand votes, 500 votes. You know, there's people in this town that have family reunions that that are that big. And so, like, you, you know, under the overpass tonight, there's going to be probably about 5,000 people. Cars, music, everything going on. I mean, that's a, that'll sway an entire election. And, you know, in this election coming up, there's probably be lucky to have, you know, 18% of people turn out. And, you know, I'm looking forward to trying to spike that number a little bit higher. Some people think it's going to be as low as 12%. Uh, I think we're going to, you know, at least keep it upwards with the work that's going in. But it's all local, man. It's all local. Well, that's our uh, that's our show for the day, man. I'm so glad you came down. Yeah, I appreciate and, you having me, Bruce. Yeah, and you know you're always welcome here. I'm gonna see you on the regular. We're gonna keep building together. We're gonna we're gonna put in work together, and we've got a big team for you to meet all around the state. You can be up in Baton Rouge trying to to lend your experience to to you know what you know, put your ideas forth. You have a place to. You know, to work on things that you think need to change and work on it through a team, group movement. That's what's up. That's what's up. Thanks for having me, man. All right. So just chill to the next episode. I'm DJ Buha. We out. We need each other. Wake up, everybody. Bye.
Come on, come on.